Well, good morning. We've already had a wonderful time of worship, and now we get the opportunity to sit under the Word of God and to be encouraged, I hope, by it this morning. We are uh, completing a two-part series. Began last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we are looking at the two primary obstacles of the Christian life that cause us to lose heart. And this text gives us such a clear outline as to what the main point for Paul is. And so we want to draw our encouragement clearly from the text. And that's what we're going to do. We do not lose heart, ministry perseverance in the face of overwhelming trials. Last week we looked at, uh, if you were here last week, we looked at the theological foundations for ministry perseverance and the character of ministry perseverance in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Is that me? Am I, am I doing something? It's me. Is it my problem? Let's find out. Let's find out. <laughs> All right, we'll go with that and see what happens. <laughs> All right. Um, I guess I could stop breathing and try to keep, keep myself from breathing. Um, well, All right, well, anyways, uh, turn me down a little bit or whatever you need to do. Uh, last week, we looked in, in chapter 4 of 1 through 6 of uh, 2 Corinthians. We saw the theological foundation that Paul gave us in order to persevere in the ministry with appropriate character, with integrity. And we saw that Paul was rooted in the sovereignty of God over his ministry and over the salvation of unbelievers. And that because he was rooted there, he was, un- he was able to maintain an unswerving integrity in the midst of rampant and entrenched unbelief. And the key phrase for Paul was, we do not lose heart. And that's the key phrase for today. We do not lose heart. We are going to see that same phrase again today. All of chapter two, of chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians is, is an extended explanation for how Paul persevered with hope, with integrity in the midst of insurmountable obstacles. Last week we talked about how to persevere in the face of unbelief. This week we are going to discuss how to persevere in the face of overwhelming trials. All of us in this room experience both. We experience the unbelief around us expressed in a myriad of ways, and we uh, we uh, face overwhelming trials in our life from a myriad of angles. Paul repeats this phrase, we do not lose heart in verse 16. You can look down to verse 16, and he connects that phrase with what he had said previously with the little word, so. It's translated so here. It could be translated in your Bibles, therefore, or for this reason. That's Those are good translations. Paul's giving us more reasons in verses 7 through 15 and in verse 16, as we'll see, for why he and his ministry companions, and by extension, the, the Corinthian church, and by extension, this church here today, Grace Bible Fellowship, do not lose heart in the face of the two biggest obstacles we will encounter in our lives in ministries. 
The first obstacle we saw last week is the obstacle of unbelief. When we are confronted with the entrenched unbelief that characterizes most of this world, we will be tempted to lose heart. The second obstacle in the suffering we, we will endure because of our faith in Christ. We need deep, theological, unshakable reasons to not lose heart because our present circumstances will be constantly tempting us to interpret those problems, interpret those troubles by what we see instead of what we know about God. Satan would love to get our eyes on what we see instead of getting our ears in tuned with God's word. So today I want to fortify your perseverance in the faith by looking at five reasons why Christians do not lose heart in the face of overwhelming trials. Five reasons why Christians do not lose heart in the face of overwhelming trials. The first reason is this. Reason number one. Really simple outline. Five reasons. Reason number one. God's power is seen most vividly when the gospel is proclaimed by suffering saints. We see that in verse chapter 7. God's power is seen most vividly when the gospel is proclaimed by suffering saints. Let's look at verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul now turns from dealing with the problem of unbelief to now deal with the problem of suffering. If the question last week was, Paul, don't you think it's weird when you preach this glorious gospel that some people, most people don't believe it? If that was the question last week, the question this week would be, Paul, don't you think it's strange that the children of the king of the universe suffer and not only suffer, but suffer probably more than most? Why do Christ's people suffer? Why do God's messengers suffer? Paul's going to meet this problem head on in this passage and in so doing give us five reasons for why Christians do not lose heart in the face of overwhelming trials and suffering. In order to persevere and even thrive under the yoke of suffering, we must know how God works and what he is up to. And he has graciously given us that information in verses 7 and following. So we want to gather this treasure. We want to understand these words so that we might persevere, not merely surviving, but actually thriving in the ministry. And as I mentioned last week, this is not merely a passage for pastors, although it does have some immediate application to pastors. Everyone here has a new covenant ministry. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has entrusted to you a ministry to carry out in your families, among relatives, at your place of work, and so on. So we want to know how to persevere in the ministry. In verse 7, Paul gives us insight into God's design. Mark that word. God's design to showcase his power in the proclamation of the gospel. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing value belongs to God and not to us. What treasure is he talking about? He's talking about that new covenant treasure, the gospel. The the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All of us in here are believers today can behold Jesus Christ and his beauty and his glory in the gospel. And as we behold that glory spiritually, we are actually changed from one degree of glory to the next. 
what other parts, what other facets of this great jewel of God's treasure, the treasure of God's sovereignty over salvation that then enables us to walk in security, hope, joy, and unswerving integrity. But God's plan is not just to display this precious treasure in dazzling vessels or bejeweled containers. In fact, he doesn't want to display it there at all. But he wants to display it in clay pots, jars of clay. But, but why would a king risk uh, displaying his treasure in easily broken, destructible, weak, plain pots? Doesn't that disgrace the treasure? Shouldn't treasure be displayed in a container that is more fitting to the worth of the treasure itself? I mean, wouldn't it be unfitting? Just imagine this for a moment. Wouldn't it be unfitting for the exhibit curators at the Tower of London to display the crown jewels on top of a trash bin? Overturn the trash bin, put the crown jewels in there for everybody to, to view. Such a display, we would say, and rightly so, would disgrace the crown jewels. It would clearly not be a fitting venue for that in light of their great worth. How then is it fitting for a treasure infinitely more valuable to be displayed in earthen vessels? And I think in order to answer that question, we have to ask what Paul is talking about when he says jars of clay or earthen vessels, and maybe in your translation. Notice how Paul talks about something specific in the remaining Verses. He's going to talk about his body. And as we see how he talks about his body, I think we can discern what he means when he says clay pots or jars of clay. He says in verses 10 and 11, he says that he is always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we live, for we who live are always being put, given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. No, Now note verse 16. We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So Paul is referring to his body, I would argue, when he's referring to these clay pots, these having this treasure in jars of clay. So why does that matter? Because in order to showcase his power... God has chosen to display the gospel in people whose bodies are weak and easily broken. The translation jars of clay in the ESV is a good rendering of the two words in the original text. These are pots, bowls, vessels, containers that are made out of clay. Containers made from the dirt, just like us. God made man from the dust of the ground and he has chosen to display his infinitely precious gospel in such vessels. But why would God choose to display his gospel in people whose bodies are weak and easily broken? Couldn't God have just have had the message on display in a museum for all to read? Couldn't he have just had the message recorded on the finest of paper and placed in a velvet lined case with carefully monitored Environmental controls and round-the-clock guards. Surely this kind of display is more fitting than earthen vessels, right? But actually, it's precisely because the treasure of the gospel is infinitely more valuable than the crown jewels in London that God has chosen to display his uh, treasure in jars of clay. Why? Because one of the brightest jewels 
among the treasure of the gospel is the truth that our salvation comes entirely from the power of God. It is utterly precious to me and I hope to many of you that God is the one who bestows salvation. Because I know my own heart and I know my own tendency towards unbelief. And when I come and I behold the truth that it is God who preserves my faith, it is God who grants salvation, I find that to be a glorious treasure. And that treasure is displayed in all of its glory in broken, easily broken vessels. It's the truth that Paul said last week, if you remember, as he expounded in verses 1 through 6, it was the truth of God's complete sovereignty over salvation that kept him grounded in the midst of unentrenched unbelief around him. And it's the truth of God's power in salvation. It's this truth that shines with unmistakable clarity when it's displayed in weak, unimpressive, easily broken, suffering Christians. That's why Paul says, note his language, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing value belongs to God and not to us. God has a design for why he has placed the gospel in people who are easily broken. is to display his glory. And if you think that's only to display God's glory, like I just said, the best thing for us is to find out and to learn and to grab a hold of the truth that it is God's power that keeps us in the faith even in the midst of suffering. When a spiritually blind person is finally able to see and embrace the glory of Christ in the gospel, it's not because he penetrated divine mysteries with the power of his intellect. The only explanation is that God alone shines spiritual light into the darkness. You wonder why God has allowed the, the, the unbelief to become so entrenched in our day and age, is it not so that he can show that it's not man's intellect that opens the divine mystery of Christ? It must be the Spirit of God shining its light into the heart of the unbeliever. That's what Paul was arguing in chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. Likewise, when a Christian suffers and is brought to the brink of despair but is able to keep believing in the goodness and kindness of Jesus Christ, it has not been because they've been able to grit their teeth and bear the suffering. The only explanation, the only explanation for such perseverance is the power of God. The best thing, I've already said this, but the best thing for us is to come to learn deeply and profoundly that the power of our perseverance in the faith does not come from us, it comes from God alone when unbelievers see christians sorrowful yet always rejoicing in the midst of their suffering their skepticism the unbelievers skepticism and frivolity and casual dismissals of christianity are greatly silenced in the face of the power of god and the reality of gospel that kind of power has been happening since the new testament and it continues today there is tremendous power that flows from a godly Christian when they walk in faith and holiness in the midst of great suffering. 
and I, and I say this without any exaggeration at all, with, in total authenticity with you, one of the greatest spiritual enjoyments I have ever had is when I am able to walk and have the privilege of walking with suffering saints who bear their suffering with steadfast integrity and joy and real hope in God. And I may have mentioned this a, a couple of years ago, I think, in a sermon that I preached when I first, me and my uh, wife and boys first arrived here, I, I talked to you about a friend I had in seminary who God had brought through unimaginable suffering, the kind of suffering I expect he, few of us in here ever to endure. Slander and attack that you can't even begin to imagine. And I was had the privilege of walking with him through that. And there was power reverberating from his life as he walked through this suffering with joy, with trust in Christ. I was built up. I was strengthened. I was edified. So there is power. God knows what he's doing by placing the treasure of the gospel in earthen pots. His glory and his power is on display. And that brings us to the second reason why we do not lose heart. The first reason is because God's power is most clearly and most vividly displayed when the gospel is preached by those who are suffering. The second reason, reason number two, is that God keeps our faith from failing. This is why we do not lose heart, because we know that God keeps our faith from failing. This is the next verse, next few verses. Notice what he says. We are, this is Paul speaking. And if anybody could say this, it would be the Apostle Paul. And we'll, we'll find out in a moment. But he, note these words. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Notice how Paul's statement in verse 7 flows right into his statements in 8 through 11. He he has just said that the reason why God has chosen to display the gospel in earthen vessels was so that uh, God could showcase his power in the perseverance of suffering saints. In verses 8 through 11, he describes now in more detail what he means. As Paul noted in verse 7, God's design is to showcase his power through suffering saints. There is a design to our suffering. It's not arbitrary. It's not in vain. Even in the worst of Suffering, God never lets his children come to ultimate despair, nor does he let their faith ultimately fail. What did Jesus say to Peter when Peter was going to be faced with an immense trial of his faith? What did Jesus say? Your faith, I have prayed that your faith, what? Will not fail. And it did not ultimately fail, though he was taken through the ringer. Paul says that he was afflicted in every way. Every way. And it, he's not exaggerating. Truly, in every way, he was afflicted. And he gives some of those details in uh, later in this book. You can look there in chapter 11, verses 22 through 29. In fact, we will look there just so you can kind of get a taste. Because, lest we think that Paul can talk about these things, having not experienced them, he tells us how he has indeed tasted of suffering, how indeed he has been brought to the brink. What he's doing in chapter 11 is something you don't find often, I think, among ministers. Paul is defending his apostleship 
by cataloging his suffering. And he says in verse, he doesn't want to defend himself. He doesn't like to have to do it, but he's going to do it in order to protect the gospel. And he's going to defend his apostleship by cataloging his sufferings. Listen to this so you can understand so that it, it really is weighs heavy on us that Paul does know what he's talking about. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Why? Because he doesn't want to have to do this. He doesn't want to have to any, in any way exalt himself. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there is a daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak when I am not weak? Who is made to fall when I am not indignant? So Paul tasted suffering. And I believe by God's design. So that he could write to us today at GBF this morning and encourage us to say we do not lose heart and in the, in the worst kind of suffering. In all these things, Paul was afflicted, but according to verse 8, not crushed. In other words, even in the midst of severe trials, Paul was not ultimately unhinged spiritually. He was never so weighed down by his trials that he couldn't hang on to the Lord by faith. His sufferings included emotional and intellectual trials. He was perplexed. I find great encouragement there. But he he was never allowed to fall into ultimate despair. He was persecuted for his belief in Jesus, but never forsaken by Jesus. Jesus was with him in every way till the very end of his life, and he even records that in 2 Timothy 4.17, that the Lord stood by him all the way. Isn't that good? He was struck down, but never ultimately destroyed. And I think that phrase, or that last sentence, is really key, because I want you to notice that phrase, because that word destroyed is a word that can refer to the ultimate destruction of condemnation, the ultimate destruction that a person uh, will feel once if they were to enter into final punishment what i take paul to mean here by the language that he is using is that he cannot lose his faith even as he is pummeled by trials in other words you can hammer and hammer and hammer and hammer a true believer with every conceivable trial and they will not lose their faith God sets up Paul as an example to show us, to encourage us, that you can be absolutely pummeled with every conceivable kind of trial, and you, if you trusted in Christ and you are a true believer, you will not lose your faith. What encouragement. This is exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 8, 35-39. I'm just going to read it for us because we need to be reminded of these things. 
Paul writes there, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long and are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure or I am certain that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth or anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of those things are things that threaten to undo our faith. And Paul is saying, I'm confident that will not happen. I am set up as an example for you as someone who is hammered relentlessly and yet Christ upheld all the way. He was certain that in all the ways he was hammered by the trials of Life, no trial could ever ultimately strike a fatal blow to his faith and detach him from the love of Christ. But notice the next phrase. Notice the next phrase. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In all this suffering, Paul is displaying the death of Jesus because he was a partaker in the sufferings of Christ. One promise we have in scripture is that if we are bound to Christ by faith, we will also suffer in some measure with Christ. That was Paul's case. That will be ours. But he also, Paul also displays the life of Jesus by his perseverance and joy in godly character. It could only be the life of Jesus sustaining Paul in the midst of such overwhelming trials, right? How could Paul be sorrowful yet always rejoicing when he was the recipient of so much suffering? It was because the life of Jesus indwelt him and sustained him. Paul was often on the brink, but he was never allowed to go over that brink. He endured significant suffering for the sake of Christ. Some of you in here today are currently, but he was never and you will never be left without the gracious hand of your heavenly father upholding you and keeping you. God kept Paul from ultimate despair and he kept his faith from failing and he will do the same for you. So that's reason number two. God upholds our faith. That's why we don't lose heart. God upholds our faith. He will not let our faith fail. Well, reason number three is found in verses 12 and 15. So let's look at those. Short little phrase here, short little sentence in verse 12. It says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. And then verse 15, for it is all for your sake so that his grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. The third reason why we do not lose heart in the face of overwhelming trials is because our suffering gives hope and life to others. We see this in those two verses that we just looked at. Paul recognized that his daily Dying, his daily suffering was actually one of God's means of strengthening, strengthening believers and drawing others to faith in Jesus. Death was at work in Paul, but life was at work in the Corinthians. The compelling glory of the gospel that we've already talked about was seen in Paul as he suffered yet persevered in joy and stability. And even more than this, Paul saw that the suffering was actually for the benefit of the Corinthians and ultimately for the glory of God as we noted in verse 15. Again, we, we have to say this, Paul, or God's design in Paul's suffering, in God's design in your suffering, God's design in my suffering, it's not haphazard, God's not fumbling around trying to figure out what's going on, there's a design to it. His design is that through our perseverance in the midst of trials, we uh, will strengthen 
other believers and win unbelievers to faith in Christ. When the grace of spiritual strength and the grace of salvation flows from us to others, it increases in thanksgiving that goes to God. Paul did not lose heart because he knew there was a divine purpose in his suffering. It was not in vain. His suffering was not in vain. Isn't that a reason to lose heart if you were convinced that your suffering was in vain? I mean, I just don't know how evolutionists or atheists can keep their heads together, much less suffering together. If your suffering's in vain, if it's meaningless, how do you not lose heart? But in Paul's case, in the Christian's case, we know that suffering is not in vain. It's useful. It's productive. Now, we live in a land of productivity. Silicon Valley is known for its productivity. There are books and articles flowing out of the Silicon Valley that talk about how to be a more productive employee, a more more productive executive. And productivity is usually measured by how much you can get done or tangibly produce or accomplish. Rarely, except for some of the better uh, writers who are kind of able to notice these kind of things, but, but rarely will you read someone explain how suffering is actually productive. But in the case of the Christian, even when you feel as though you have been sidelined by trials, personal illnesses, family illnesses, death, financial trouble, the truth is that your suffering serves to produce fruit, namely, more grace in the life of others, and more thanks and praise to the glory of God. Paul's already mentioned these things in his letter, in the first chapter of his book, an amazing few verses, an important few verses, I think, for us to even memorize as we think about this issue of suffering, this problem of suffering. Listen to what Paul says in verses 3 through 7 in chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in the midst of our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in the same sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. One of the reasons why you're currently suffering the way you're suffering right now is so that tomorrow or next week or next month or 10 years from now, you may be able to sit down with someone and offering them and offer them comfort in the midst of their suffering that is much like yours. I've sat down with many conversations and after a few minutes, it becomes very clear why God has brought me together with that person at that time for that conversation. Because they need comfort, they need insight into a particular trial that I may have suffered recently. So God afflicts us, not because he does so willingly or from the heart as Lamentations tells us, but in order to produce life and hope in other Christians. Now, Paul was a missionary and an apostle, so I do believe that God's hand was on him in a special way to showcase the glory and power through his, God's glory and power through his sufferings. And as we already seen, he needed to do that so that when Paul's word come to us, comes to us about how to persevere in sufferings, we'll actually 
receive it from someone who did taste and know of real suffering. But these principles are for all Christians. Your suffering is always productive and never in vain. It produces comfort and even salvation for others. There's actual spiritually spiritual strengthening and life being transmitted from the suffering saint to others. As I already shared with you in the life of my friend who suffered while we were in Louisville. And he his life was a testimony and it actually empowered me as I walked with him and had the privilege to see him suffer well. So our suffering is productive. It's not in vain. That takes us to reason number four. We are now on reason number four and making really good time I just noticed so reason number four why don't we lose heart why don't we lose heart in the face of overwhelming trials the face of real suffering God will raise us from the dead God will raise us from the dead notice how Paul's suffering was productive Note verses 13 and 14. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul continued to speak. He continued to preach the gospel to the Corinthians in the midst of his suffering. And the result was life to his listeners, as we saw in verses 12 and 15. But how could Paul continue to preach the gospel in the face of overwhelming trials? How? Because Paul had a hope in the resurrection. So that he was able to, in the midst of his trials, continue to hope in his ultimate deliverance from death and preach the good news of Christ. See, the treasure of the gospel is seen in all of its beauty when it's communicated by someone who is suffering yet unshakably confident that God will ultimately deliver them. When Paul says, I believed and so I spoke, he's actually quoting from Psalm 116 verse 10 and I actually encourage you when you have a moment to read Psalm 116 in light of what Paul says here. Paul's not just ripping a verse out of context. In the in Psalm 116, the psalmist is in the midst of suffering, even disillusionment, believe it or not, And he rejoices in God's past deliverances and places his hope in the final deliverance, for final deliverance in God. You might recall that verse uh, in Psalm 116, verse 15, just five verses later, that says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Paul can speak with the same spirit of faith as the psalmist and with even greater clarity Because he had full assurance of the resurrection because of Christ's resurrection. Just imagine what we have now. We are assured of our resurrection because of Christ's resurrection. We know that he is raised from the dead. We will rise from the dead. Paul and the psalmist are able to continue to speak about God's goodness because they trust their final deliverance in the resurrection. You might say that you're suffering terribly, but Christ is good and the gospel is all you need. Even though you suffer great loss in this life, you will be restored a million times over at the resurrection. And that is something we have to embrace and look forward to. The resurrection is not just some sideline, marginal doctrine. It's the very essence of Paul's hope in just about every letter that he writes. He's not content merely, though he does look forward to going and being with Christ immediately as gain... He doesn't look forward to that as ultimate 
deliverance. He is looking for the resurrection. He's looking to forward to being raised with a new body, in a new heavens, in a new earth, and having things restored finally so that he can suffer and give himself up for Christ's sake in this life. And you know, this embracing of the resurrection, it also enables us to do things like set aside some of those bucket list items we might have desired. Some of those things that we hope to get for ourselves in this life, knowing that Christ will restore us, that he will raise us, that we will someday reign with him in a new heavens and the new earth, helps us to set aside some of those things that can tend towards selfishness and give us, give ourselves to Christ and give ourselves to serving others. There is glory coming that we cannot imagine. If you give something up now, you will have not truly lost it. Reason number five. So that's reason number four. God will raise us from the dead. That's why we don't lose heart. But reason number five, and and this is kind of going to ground everything that we've been saying or Paul's been saying really. Reason number five, why we do not, why we do not lose heart in the midst of overwhelming trials and suffering. Our present suffering is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Right out of the text. Our suffering is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Notice verse 16. So, or therefore, we do not lose heart. Paul has just given us, as we notice, four solid, unshakable reasons for why Christians do not lose heart in the face of overwhelming trials. But he's going to give us one more reason. And we might even say that this reason grounds the previous four. And the reason why I say it grounds the previous four is because of the little word that Paul uses in verse 17. For. For this momentary light affliction, affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For. When you see that little word, what it's doing is it's grounding, giving reasons for the previous statement. Verse 17 is going to ground it all. Paul's conclusion and the previous four reasons. Follow Paul's argument with me. We do not lose heart. Even though our body, our clay pots, are wasting away, our inner person is being renewed every day. Then verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen and not the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Notice that Paul is going to use that little word for two times in those two verses. Paul's building an argument, and each piece of that argument is placed strategically upon the other piece. We do not lose heart because, reason one, the power of God is seen most visibly and vividly in the power when the gospel is proclaimed by suffering saints. Reason number two, God keeps our faith from failing. Reason number three, our suffering gives life and comfort and hope to others. Reason number four, God will raise us from the dead. Now verse 17. Here's our fifth reason. We see it. He's grounding what he said previously. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Now there are some of us in here who might take issue with that word light. Your suffering feels anything but light. Indeed, it's an unimaginable burden. My child has cancer. My sister recently died. I lost my job. 
My children are no longer rocking with the Lord. What do you mean, Paul, by using that word light? These trials are anything but light. But Paul is not mocking us. As we saw already in chapter 11, Paul had suffered mightily. He can speak to us about these things with authenticity and reality. In terms of personal suffering, Paul had endured the entire gamut, physical and emotional trials that most of us can only imagine. In fact, in, uh, in verses 8 and 9 in chapter 1, Paul says this, that he was so, quote, utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Have any of you ever felt like that? Paul has. He knows the bitterness of suffering. But he says that this suffering is light. How can he say this? Because he's making a comparison to the glory that we will someday experience. So let me see if I can put this in some small illustration for us. In 2006... A group of friends and I uh, decided for the second time to hike Half Dome in Yosemite National Park. In fact, there's a group that just recently did this that I found out as I was preparing this uh, uh, illustration. A group from uh, young uh, guys and girls from our church that actually recently did this very same hike. And um, when we set out, uh, we set out from a particular parking lot so that the total trip would be around 18 and a half, 19 miles with about a 4,800 foot elevation change on the up trip. And we wanted to make good time, and we ended up completing the entire route in just uh, under nine hours. So we made we made decent time. But on the way back down, I remember this to this day, I still remember this. I even remember looking down at the ground um, doing this. I, I remember me and my friend Paul cursing our decision to make this hike at such a pace. This is ridiculous. Our legs hurt, our back hurts, our hips hurt. We are ready to be done. Uh, but but after a, a good pizza dinner and some rest, do you know what we started talking about almost immediately after we were done? Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Well, that's insanity, isn't it? Why on the return hike, when we had questioned and wondered about the wisdom of our decision to enter into such suffering... To decide only after some rest and reflection that we would like to do it again. Because having topped out on Half Dome with unsurpassed views of the Yosemite Valley, the thoughts of our suffering faded into insignificance. It was totally worth it. Even in the face of suffering. We forgot about the suffering. In a very, very, very small sense, I recognize that's an inadequate illustration for what Paul is writing here. But in a very small sense, I believe that's what it will be like in glory. We may have suffered much in this life, but upon reflection in the presence of the glory of Jesus Christ, we will say it was totally worth it. Our afflictions were light compared to the weight of glory. And you know, I think mommies can, can, to attest, can attest to similar feelings after bearing and birthing their children. The pain and the labor... I've heard, uh, and the agony to bring forth a child is soon and uh, often forgotten, even moments after the child is brought into the world. Why is it that women so often begin to talk about having another child weeks, 
days, even moments after going through the trauma of having given birth. It's because the glory of that new little child makes the suffering seem light, momentary, and completely worth it. But there's even more to the verse than that. Paul's saying that our suffering is actually producing a weight of glory for us. And I don't know all the details of what that means. But there is something happening, something God is doing that's glorious. He's preparing in our very sufferings right now a weight of glory that will correspond in some way to our suffering in this life. What grace, what promise that God holds out for us. But in order to keep ourselves rooted in these glorious realities, we are looking not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. In order, um, or I'm, I'm sorry, we will not be able to persevere in our ministry or in our lives in the midst of suffering if we look only to what we see. Because right now, what we see is fallenness, sin, unbelief, our child's special needs, our child's sickness, our sister-in-law's Alzheimer's, the ravages of cancer, and our current painful circumstances. That's what we see. The reason why we must keep our eyes on the things that are unseen is because the things unseen are more stable, enduring realities. Note the latter part of verse 18. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The affliction, the persecution, the perplexities, the sicknesses, the suffering all occur in a reality that is temporary. It's temporary. Paul's not saying that what we experience in this life is not real. Your suffering is real and painful. Some religions teach that suffering and pain is illusory. It's not. It is real. What you feel right now in the midst of your trial is real. Paul's not teaching that it's not real. It is truly real. The point that Paul's making is that what you see is real, but it's only temporary. The things that we can't see, the truth, the truths of the gospel of Christ's resurrection, of his current reign in heaven, the resurrection of the righteous, our heavenly weight of glory, the coming kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, these are the things that last forever. This fallen world is only temporary, and that is the truth that grounds Paul's entire argument from verses 1 to 18. What we see now is temporary. And the only way we will be able to navigate the trials of life that we see is if we're able to look beyond what we see to what is truly enduring. Generally speaking, life is hard, isn't it? And being a Christian can oftentimes make life more difficult in some ways, but only temporarily. While your eyes may be so blurred with tears that it is nearly impossible to see with faith the promises of future glory, there is coming a day when God will set everything right, and you will be able to say that our suffering, though agonizing at the time, was light and temporary compared with our future inheritance. In the meantime, you may be afflicted, but you will not be crushed. You may be perplexed, but God will not allow you to be driven to despair. You might be persecuted, but you will never be forsaken by Christ. You might be struck down, but your faith will never be 
destroyed. And for these reasons, we do not lose heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful for the truth that it is by your power alone that we stand. I pray that you would uphold everyone here according to your promise. Every believer here would know the power of the Spirit and of Christ in their own lives so that they might know without a shadow of a doubt that it is you who upholds their faith. Help us, Lord, to embrace the trials of life, the trials of being a Christian with trust and faith and hope in you, not not willpower, not trying to get through it or grit our teeth, but trusting in your power and trusting in your good word that you will enable us to persevere through our trials for Christ's sake and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.